Take your Bibles, if you would now, and open them to Matthew chapter 13. And I want to call your attention once again to the last verses in this 13th chapter. Uh, This is our second message from this particular portion of Scripture. And the title of the message again today is The Anatomy of Unbelief. And what I'm discussing here, the main important part of this message that I'm trying to get across to you is how that people can really become hardened in unbelief, that the gospel can be preached to them, they can hear the message of Christ over and over again, but they simply will not believe in Christ. Now, this summer, we have been emphasizing the need for our church to be involved in evangelism, and that's because every one of us, as children of God, have been commissioned to give the gospel to other people, we're to be his witnesses, And Jesus described that in the first part of this chapter in the parable of the sower. And he talked about a farmer that sows seed. And at first he compared that to himself, but I think there's also an application to all of us that we are to give the gospel of Christ. We're like the farmer. Uh, The field is the world, the seed is the gospel, and the soil on which it falls is the human heart. Again, Jesus illustrated that in the parable of the sower. But he also illustrated how that some soil or some hearts are unprepared for the gospel. Some soil is very hard, some of it is shallow, some is weed infested. And in those types of soil, the seed simply will not grow. Now, at first, it appears that the seed germinates and uh, looks like it's going to grow, but there are other factors that come along and it chokes out that seed so the plant never matures. And Jesus compares the seed that doesn't grow to the way that many people respond to the preaching of the gospel. The seed is planted when they hear the gospel of Christ, but because of the hardness of their hearts, they will not believe. Now, in in many, that hardness is in an intensified state so that the gospel never penetrates it, and people, they're simply not convicted and they don't come to Christ. Now, a vivid example of that is actually in this part of the Scriptures, that there are many more people who did not believe in Christ than did believe in him. And among those who we would think that surely have no excuse for not believing in him would be the people in his hometown of Nazareth. Why didn't they believe in Jesus? Well, we'll notice here what takes place in Nazareth as we read the Scripture. So if you'll stand with me again, we'll look at, Chapter 13, verse number 53 is where we'll start our reading. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Father, thank you for your word and the reading of it. We just ask you, Lord, to open our hearts to the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 58 mentions that Jesus had finished teaching the parables. And these parables are illustrations of of the kingdom. 
and they were explanation to his uh, an explanation to the to the disciples about the growth of the kingdom of God and what they could expect during the time that they're waiting for Jesus to return to this earth. Now, this time that we're living in is a time of preaching of the gospel of Christ. The kingdom of God grows through the proclamation of the gospel, and that means whether you as an individual do the witnessing to family or friends, or whether I as a preacher and a pastor stand in a pulpit and preach the gospel, or whether it comes by the printed media or broadcast medium, there's no way that the kingdom of God is going to grow unless there is a proclamation of the gospel. Now, the disciples needed to know how often the message that they preach would be rejected. Not all of the seed would fall on good ground. And through the next three chapters here, there's a demonstration of different reactions to the gospel of Christ. And we find in this incident, as Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, how so many people can become hardened in their unbelief. And the last message I spoke about, and we spent all of our time on this first point, which was the alarm of unbelief. During his Galilean ministry, Jesus moved his headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum. That's a town about 20 miles away on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he removed from Nazareth originally because when he taught in the synagogue in Nazareth, he angered the leaders with with his preaching. And and they were just simply so angry at him that they threatened to kill him and even took him up to the edge of the hill, you remember, and tried to throw him off of a cliff. Well, we come to this passage, and Jesus has returned to Nazareth. This is after he had done thousands of miracles all across the area of Galilee. He'd been in his ministry for about a year, and the news of and the fame of Jesus had spread all throughout that region. And, and even though he had not been back to Nazareth, you, you can just imagine that with the short distances in that area, how, how that news traveled so quickly, so there was hardly a person who hadn't heard about Jesus. Nazareth was not ignorant of the things Jesus had done. And so when he returned to the synagogue to teach, as was customary in any place that he went, he spoke with such grace and with such authority, with such knowledge that... People were just mesmerized by him. He commanded their attention. They listened intently. And when he was through speaking, they looked at each other and they said, where does this man get this wisdom? How is he able to do all of these mighty works? And that was a question of authority. Where does he get the authority to do these things? And there wasn't any debate about his miracles. No question about that. They, they agreed that he did miracles. They couldn't argue. But they only questioned this. How does he do those? Where does he get authority? Where does he get the power to do this? How can he take the scriptures and teach them the way that he does? And isn't that answer glaringly obvious? Uh, Some of the most ignorant of people recognized how he was able to do it. The blind man in John chapter 9, he knew, and and the religious leaders feigned ignorance. and, and And the blind man in that chapter said, anybody who's able to do these things, we know that he can't do them unless he came from God. But the worldly wise in Nazareth refused to believe that he came from God. And so they continued here in verses 55 and 56 after he'd done preaching with an examination of of, of his life, of, of his former occupation, of his family. He was a carpenter, they said, and that's just an ordinary occupation. He came from an ordinary family. His mother was ordinary. 
his brothers and sisters, they were also ordinary. They'd watched Jesus grow up, and he was... He had just an ordinary childhood, and so they really saw nothing in him that foreshadowed all of this greatness that he was now demonstrating. And instead of receiving this one that was so obviously not ordinary, the Bible says that they were offended at him. And that tells us that the questions that they asked were not honest questions. They weren't really interested in seeking truth about him, but they took these things and they tried to use it against him. And instead of believing what the evidence so clearly told him, told them, they just turned him away in unbelief. And these are people like you find all across the landscape of America today. I mean, you find people who say that they know who Jesus is, and many that even claim that they have a relationship with him. They say that they believe something about him, but they're not actually willing to take what the Bible says about him. They want a Jesus that fits their standards and their model. And so when he calls them to repentance and to faith and tells them that they must obey his commandments, then Jesus turns into that ordinary carpenter. He's just ordinary. He's from a nondescript family. He's from a no-name family, a little town that really has no significance. Now, we move on from that, which was the subject of last week's message, and we see an attitude begin to develop in people, and that's the attitude of unbelief. And I suppose if, 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 as we look at this, I think about if there's one way that I would like to be recognized as as a pastor of Berean Baptist Church, I, I would really like for people to say about me, now, there is a guy who is very dogmatic about what he believes. He always thinks that he's right. Now, in in this politically correct world that we live in, it's not always best to say that you're always right. And so you may not like my views of politics, and you may not be happy if I say that I don't like either of the presidential candidates, and you might not be happy if you think I'm too conservative or too liberal or too Republican or too Democrat. You may not like it if I don't drive a green automobile and I don't recycle the bath water to make ice in the refrigerator. You may not like that. So you may not really be crazy about any of my opinions, but you have a little bit of latitude in that because, you know, I'm flexible on some things. I mean, you can talk to me about those things. Maybe you can persuade me. I might change my mind and have a little different opinion at at another time. But when it comes to God and his word, people don't like it when you are extremely dogmatic about this issue, and that is that Jesus is the Christ and he is the only way to God, that there is only one way that you can be saved, there's only one way that you can know the eternal God, and that is through Jesus Christ. If you want to be right with him, you have to come through him. That's the only way that you're going to escape the punishment of eternal hell. You've got to have faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're, I, I'm very dogmatic on this issue, and you're not going to see me change on this, that there are no other paths to God. The, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Mormons or whatever, they do not serve the same God that I serve. Their ways to get to God are not valid ways. And I'm not going to waver on that issue. And I hope that you don't either. But you know the problem with many people as they listened to Jesus and they heard what he had to say? First of all, there was this scornful indignation about him. Scornful indignation. This gospel 
of Jesus Christ alone and faith in him alone is too simple for many people and too far beneath their dignity. You see, what people naturally believe is the devil's religion. And the devil's religion doesn't rely on God. Now, it's perfectly happy to use God's name, and it likes to attach God to it, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with God. Now, the biblical method is salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so that means that salvation has nothing at all to do with your efforts. Paul wrote in that familiar scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the very first thing that God does in salvation is to take you out of the picture. He removes you, and he doesn't allow the good things that you do to be the cause of your salvation. And there, and there are several reasons for that. And, and if we were studying the anatomy of belief today or the anatomy of faith, I would start to list for you all the reasons why salvation cannot be of you and your works. But I'll leave it alone for now and just simply say this, that God does not want to give you any reason to boast. He doesn't want you to be able to say that you're good enough, that you're smart enough, that you are holy enough, that you're pretty enough, that you're rich enough, or anything else to be saved. But did you know that that is what the pride and the arrogance of man rejects? They reject any thought that I can't do something to help with my salvation. And so salvation by faith alone is too simplistic. It's not really worthy of intelligent, thinking people. And so if we're going to be saved, we're going to do it our way, not God's way. And that's the devil's tactic. He started it all the way back in the, in the Garden of Eden when he said to Eve, he said, Eve, if you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be as God. And since that time, people have always tried to take over for God. And so whenever you're dogmatic about this issue, uh, unbelief rears its ugly head, and and it comes out in forms like self-esteem and self-ability and self-aggrandizement and also in independence. People want to be independent, actually, of God. So a gospel that's dependent upon God alone is not really what they want because that's not a gospel for self-starters. It's not a gospel for do-it-yourselfers. And so people are offended by the suggestion that they're sinners and they have no ability to help themselves. And isn't that really just the root issue here of the synagogue of Nazareth and those people? Why did they so strongly reject Jesus? Well, it's because they were locked down in a system of self-righteousness. Jesus came along teaching a totally different doctrine. And so instead of accepting the proof of thousands of miracles that he did and the incomparable wisdom that he had, they became indignant and they said, who does he think he is? And the Bible says they were offended in him. Well, we see another attitude of unbelief and that's spiteful inattention. Now, first, it's scornful indignation followed by spiteful inattention. And we find it in verse number 57. And they were offended in him, but Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Now, the question, where does he get his wisdom? Whence hath he these, these things? Now, that, that's all a question about upbringing. It's a, it's a question about, about his education. He, he had no formal education. 
And long ago, at the age of 12 years old, he showed that he didn't need their education. But that's the first thing that people want to know before they start to listen to you. What are your qualifications? How do you know so much? And someone would say, well, we can't, we can't listen to that guy. What we really need to do is get somebody from out of town. Now, for some reason, people from out of town seem to know more than anybody. I mean, more than, no matter who the guy next door is, somebody from out of town knows more than he does. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And that was already a proverb, a proverb at the time of Jesus that was well known. And Jesus simply meant, you won't pay attention to me because I'm from around here. I grew up in Nazareth. You know me and you don't pay attention to me. And even in his own family, no one really believed in him. None of his brothers and sisters. Mary was the only one that was a Christian and the rest of them paid no attention until he had risen from the dead. Let me expand on that just a little bit. You know, I I was uh, doing some thinking about this as how these scriptures apply. A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own household. And I began to think about, well, I'd I'd studied a few years ago the biblical methods of, of ordination and qualifications for choosing someone to be a pastor of the church. And John Gill, the 17th century commentator, had a had a uh, some interesting comments about this. That he felt that the best place that a church could go to find a pastor for a church for their church was to train young men from within the church and then call them into the pulpit. And that's because the ones that are in the church they already know the people far better than those that are outside. They've already got a connection to people. But over the years, that has changed, and, and there are rules and regulations for, for choosing pastors, and the denom- denominations have all have their ways of doing that, and hardly ever do they actually choose someone from inside the church. And so the idea is perpetuated that somebody outside, somebody from another city, somebody uh, from another state, somebody far off knows more because they came from out of state. Now, if, you're, if you were from Kentucky, like me, you'd know that nobody from Ohio or Tennessee has any sense. But if you got a little bit further beyond that, there would actually be somebody who knows something. Now, that's a free observation. Prophets get no respect from the people they know, and for some reason, familiarity breeds contempt, and that's another proverb. So how do we take that and make an application to, to, for information in our time? Well, we could look at it this way. There are some people that when you preach the gospel, when you're standing in a pulpit as I am today, they're just simply bored with everything you have to say. I mean, there's nothing really important coming from the pulpit. When you preach, there are people that don't pay attention. And when you don't pay attention, it's like telling Jesus, talk to the hand, talk to the hand. And when people are told the gospel and they turn up their noses at it, they dishonor Jesus. And and they're really saying that this thing about Jesus Christ is only just so much trivial nonsense. And whenever a Christian does this, when he reads the Bible, when he hears a preacher that says, you need to watch your life and you need to be holy and righteous in your living, and you go on and you act like you never heard that, and and you act like you've got cotton in your ears, you know what that is? It's showing scornful indignation and spiteful inattention. And it's hard for us to believe that people who claim to know Jesus Christ, 
that the gospel ever penetrated their heart when they will not glorify Jesus with their lives. Now, I want to go on and show you that remaining in this condition of unbelief has terrible effects. And have you ever let an illness go too long and you didn't do anything about it? Did you ever let an infection get past the point where it should be and you haven't treated it? Now, I mentioned some time ago that I was reading a book about Civil War camps or Civil War prison camps during, the, uh, during that time of the war. And, and the conditions in those places were simply unbelievable. I mean, they didn't have the modern methods that we have today to stop the spread of disease. And, and there were more people that actually died from disease in the Civil War than there was from the fighting. And so when they put these people into the, into the war camps, they didn't have enough food to feed them, they didn't have doctors to take care of them, and they really didn't care anyway. And so they, they, I, this book described a condition that some of the soldiers would get that was called a dry gangrene. And this would eat at their flesh until the nerves were deadened. It was almost like leprosy. Their, their, their fingers and their toes would fall off, large areas and portions of flesh would disintegrate from the from the tendons and the ligaments leaving them exposed but those men had no sense at all that there was anything that was wrong I mean that they were deadened to the pain they couldn't feel it and then there were prisoners that were with them that watched people die so many people died in the in the prison camps that death became just a natural thing and it was just something that happened all the time and you took no notice of it anymore I mean another one died so what and thousands of people died in those camps. They, people were desensitized to death and desensitized to the pain that goes along with that. And unbelief can have that kind of an effect. Now, thirdly, I want to talk to you about the apathy of unbelief. Unbelief can actually have a deadening effect. Now, it's true that all of us were once dead in sins, And Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But there's a sense as we we look at that that passage that there are, are some people that are not necessarily pliable. They're not necessarily open to the gospel when it's preached. And yet when the gospel is explained to them that the Holy Spirit opens their heart and the truth becomes clear to them and those people believe. But then there's another sense that no matter what you say, that people are determined and obstinate in their unbelief. And that's actually what this portion of Scripture is about. It's about people that are determined in their unbelief, that there is no willingness to examine the truth, there's no willingness to weigh on this matter, to consider it. And some people will patiently listen to you, they'll watch you carefully, but in the end, they just won't believe. And there's a particular case that comes to my mind I'm not going to mention this person's name, but on several occasions I had been to this person to talk to them about the gospel of Christ. And and this person was a very good listener, paid attention to, to me all of the time, and when the subject turned that way towards the things of God, always listening. And this person wouldn't even know why I was there because I'd talked to them so many times. They, they, were, they would listen but just would not believe. And so I wasn't really turned away. The person just sat and listened attentively but and never said to me, no matter what you say, I will not believe. But that was the practical result. They, that person just did not believe. And then there have been other people that wouldn't give me the time of day. 
I've handed them a track and have it angrily thrust back in my face and tell me to keep that stuff. They don't want to read it. I've come to a, gone to a door of people and rang the doorbell and they're angry at being disturbed and they come to the, to the door and they're not any better off to find out that I'm not a magazine salesman, that I want to talk to them about Jesus. That only worsens the condition. Unbelief can actually push people to the point where they are desensitized to the gospel of Christ. Now let me show you how that happens. First, unbelief cauterizes the conscience. I'm sure, or I hope that you understand what it means to cauterize a nerve. That's when the the nerve ending is seared until it no longer functions, that there is no feeling. And unbelief, if people stay in it so long, can actually come to this, that anything that is against God is fair game, that there's no sense of evil activity, there's no sense of any accountability to God. They don't even think about things whether they're right or wrong. I can preach on hell and judgment, and I can make that as real as I possibly can. And as I've told you before, if I could scare people into believing that I would do it, and yet there are people, when they hear on the subject of hell, and you make it as real as you possibly can, they can sit there and listen to you and stare into that gaping hole of the furnace, and and, and almost you could describe the heat so badly that they could feel it. But you cannot make them regret sin and fear the judgment of God. They just don't have any conscience about it. And so they never consider the seriousness of leaving this life without believing in Christ. They are determined to stay just the way they are, and that's because their conscience has stopped convicting them of their disobedience. And did you know that's not actually normal? It's not really normal for people to react that way. The Bible describes it like an aggravated condition. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. You know what he said to us? He said, God's law is written on the human heart. God's law is written on our heart. If you ever question why is it that people that have never heard of Jesus Christ and never read the Ten Commandments, how do they know it's wrong to murder somebody? How do they know it's wrong to steal? Wrong to lie? And they even know it's wrong to commit adultery. People know these things, but how do they know them? Well, it's because God's law has been written on their heart. But people can go so long in sin and in unbelief that their conscience actually becomes seared as with a hot iron. Consistent, continued unbelief will do that. And the Bible says that when this happens, God gives people over to a reprobate mind. He lets them go and they'll never be reached with the gospel of Christ. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is that there is a point of no return. I'm not given any information about when that is, and neither are you. And the only way that you know that you have not passed the point of no return after you've heard the gospel so many times is to believe in Jesus Christ right now. That's the only way that you know that you haven't passed that point. Secondly, unbelief deepens the darkness. Now, what kind of things do you think Jesus talked to them about? There are three years of Jesus' public ministry, and I can promise you this, not everything that Jesus did is recorded in the Bible. The Apostle John told us that. He said there's not enough space to record everything that Jesus did. But, and, so, and so what if they did write everything down that Jesus did? What if, what if your Bible was 100 volumes? What if it was 500 volumes or 6,000 volumes? 
And I, t- and I told you that, that the only way that you can really understand God is to read 6,000 volumes of material. 6,000 volumes is enough to explain God. And so you've got to thank him for this, that you can actually understand his salvation by reading only one chapter in the Gospel of John. You realize that's true? You know, I heard the story once of a, of a young boy in India that was at a train station and he was waiting for the train, and he spotted just a fragment of, of a paper that was laying on the train track. And so he crawled down there and picked it up, and he began to read it. And it was a fragment of the Gospel of John. And he read that, and he believed it. And he spent the rest, uh, right immediately after that, trying to find out where this, where this paper came from. He had no idea about the Bible, had never heard of it before. And so he started looking for the book that this page came from. And you wonder, why is it that there are some people that can receive just one fragment of a page or hear just a a simple gospel presentation and they will believe, and yet there are others that no matter how much you talk to them and how much information you give them, they will not believe. And this is what happens when you remain in unbelief without hearing. Things don't clear up. Things become more mysterious. And if you keep rejecting the gospel, the darkness grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And what happens when you walk in the darkness? You stumble over things. And this is what these people stumbled over. They stumbled over Jesus Christ. They were in spiritual darkness, and they just fell over him, not recognizing who he was. Now, he must have preached many more things than what we read in the Bible. There's no doubt that he dealt many on, on many occasions with their sins, but their sins stood in the way of the miracles. It was like throwing this big, thick, black blanket over the works of God because the thing that they were most unwilling to do was to deal with the issue of their sins. So here are people that are superficial believers in God. He talked to them about God's kingdom, and instead of him being this great light that led them to the door of the entrance into God's kingdom... What did they do? They tried to push him out of the way and cover up the light. And did they say, well, you know, it's nice over there in the light and it sure looks good over there in the kingdom. We don't want to go in, but if other people do, that's okay with us. They didn't do that. They stood outside of the kingdom and threw stones at anybody that dared look like they were going to go through the door. Jesus told people, the, the, the Pharisees, he said to them, you'll cross sea and land to make a proselyte and make them twofold more the child of devil or hell than you are. And he said, you're blind guides. You're, you're, you're leading the blind. Blind guides leading the blind. You're both going to fall into the ditch. These are people that are openly antagonistic towards the gospel. And the Bible shows us when that happens, the darkness only gets deeper. They're so far in that they can't see the light to get out. And so here is this bright, shining light of Jesus Christ. And without that light of the gospel, no one ever comes to salvation. Now there's a third characteristic, one more, of the apathy of unbelief. And that is that unbelief vanishes God's blessings. Now notice verse number 58. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The news of the miracles filtered into Nazareth from every direction. They couldn't have been this, this close to, the, to, the, to Jesus' activities that are happening in Capernaum and other parts of Galilee without 
a traveler coming from just about anywhere into Nazareth with a story to tell. You think about people that have no cures for diseases. They're people that the population generally has a short lifespan. You think about people that live lives without all of the modern entertainment that we have, which is not really a bad thing. But there's stories of Jesus going around so that all attention becomes focused on what's happening to this guy named Jesus that came from Nazareth. Everywhere he goes, there's a cloud of dust being kicked up. There are hundreds of people that are following him. And the numbers of people that wanted something from Jesus was staggering. We've heard on and read on occasions that Jesus was busy into the night healing people, spent all, all day and into the night healing people, just constant activity so that when he became tired, he got into a boat, went out on the sea to try to get a little bit of relief, only to find that the people just shuffled around the shore to meet his boat when they came in, all wanting something from him. The power of God was in him, and he did miracles. And he did many miracles where there was faith, but he did a lot of miracles, maybe even most of them, where there was no faith. I mean, there were some times that, that I don't mean people, you know, they, they said, I, I, I believe in the Son of God, and, and so now that I believe in you, will you heal me? There's, there's a lot of instances where that never happened. There were people that Jesus raised from the dead, and I'd like you to tell me how they had faith in Jesus to be raised from the dead. So he healed a lot of people in the absence of that belief. He healed ten lepers at one time, and there was only one of them that came back to give glory to God. So all ten men were healed of their leprosy, but the one man came back, and Jesus said, Go on your way. Your faith has made you whole. Now, he wasn't talking about his leprosy. He'd already taken care of that. So he meant that your, your faith has made you saved because of your faith. Now your soul is saved. So sometimes he healed people where there was no faith involved, and Jesus did a lot of miracles. But for all the thousands of miracles that Jesus did, did you know this? He healed people without faith, but he never healed a single person in unbelief. Do you understand the difference in that? not in willful, stubborn unbelief. Because a person is in that condition will always stop the power of God. And so with thousands of miracles done around them, here is this town of Nazareth where Jesus came from, and it was a, like a desert for power. There was nothing going on in Nazareth. A year earlier, Jesus had been teaching there. They drove him out of town. And so for that entire year, they received nothing from him. Now he's back, and he gives them a new opportunity, and they comes up with the same result. They're stubborn and antagonistic, and they mocked him, and they said, who does he think he is? He doesn't have any education. He's not an aristocrat. His family is common. It's ordinary, and nobody like that has ever had the power of God. And the result of that is he did nothing there because of their unbelief. There are no mighty works that are done when there's stubborn unbelief. Now, I hope that you understand this that why this is so important is because the greatest work that God ever does would be what? Saving a person's soul. And there has never been a person saved in unbelief. And so you have people today that have the same reaction to Jesus. They have their excuses. The gospel's not sophisticated enough. The gospel's not important enough. The gospel is too complicated or the gospel's not complicated enough. Charles Spurgeon pointed out that if the Son of God was willing to divest himself of his glory 
and to lay aside his magnificence and to empty himself of all of that, doesn't he at least deserve a hearing? If he was willing to go to Bethlehem's manger and to become a carpenter in Nazareth, shouldn't we stop long enough to hear what he has to say? And yet, Spurgeon said these are the very things that caused the prejudice against him. In our text, they said he's a carpenter. His mother is nothing special, neither is his family. And if he's God, what in the world is he doing in the town of Nazareth? And so he did no mighty works there because of unbelief. They said he's not worthy to be trusted. Now, I want to finish the message today with this thought from Spurgeon. This was in a message that he preached on May 20th, 1866. He said, Shall that almighty grace which has made it a gospel suitable to all classes and conditions of men become a reason why prejudice shall turn its back upon it? Surely it's better to be saved by the carpenter's son than to be lost, better to enter heaven through him who is despised and rejected of men than to be shut up in hell through not believing in him. Better to receive a crown of life from the hand of him who was crucified on Calvary than to receive the sentence of condemnation from the mouth of the judge when he sits upon the great white throne in all the glory of his Father and his holy angels. If any of you, dear friends, have a prejudice against any form of scriptural truth, I pray you to shake it off. We're all apt to be prejudiced in one way or another, and it needs great grace to keep us clear of the evil. So let us be on our guard against it. Give the gospel a fair consideration and very especially and impartially weigh in the scales of sound judgment the doctrine of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Sit down at the foot of the cross and study the wounds of Jesus and do not pour contempt and scorn upon him until you've found good reason to do so. And that I am sure you never will do. Shake off all prejudice. Again, I entreat you. For it is a deadly disease which may prove eternally fatal to you. And I hope that everyone would heed that message of Charles Spurgeon. Unbelief will destroy you. There's no recovery from it. So if you turn your back on Jesus, there is no hope. And do you understand that today may be your last opportunity? Because you don't know when God is going to say, it's the last time. This is the last time. This is your last opportunity. And if this invitation doesn't suit you to come to me, none else ever will. Now, you look at the people of Nazareth, and they went from astonishment at what he had to say to skepticism about who he was to offense in him. And then finally, verse 58, to nothing. They got nothing from Christ. Folks, I pray that doesn't happen to you, that God does not say to you, I will do no mighty works here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he did come into this world to save us from our sins. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here today who's heard this message and doesn't know you as Savior, that their hearts would be opened up to this. They would not remain in their unbelief. The scriptures are so clear about this that people can become hardened to the gospel to where they can hear it over and over and over again and they never respond. It gets deep. They get deeper and deeper into darkness. And then finally, 
you shut out the light completely. Lord, I pray there's nobody here like that today. And the only way to prove that they're not in that condition is to come to you immediately. In all haste, say that they receive you as Lord and Savior. Lord, help us as we've been trying to teach over the past few weeks that we would be messengers of the gospel of Christ, that we would keep shining that light to people that are lost in their sins. Help us to let them know that there is a Savior who can save them and then open their hearts to believe. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, please, as we sing.